ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out on this cool evening tonight. Chinese language and civilization, which should be easy to wrap up in an hour or so. <laughs> There's so little Chinese civilization to talk about. Um, the, 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 I think one of the most startling things about our modern world is the, quote, rise of China, which is either threatening or amazing or something. Uh, however, I think this is very much misconstrued, um, and I want to talk about this and give you a sense of why the language and literature of China, China is so important and indicative of what's going on in China today. If, if you go back to the year 1800, the exact end of the Qing Dynasty, what you find is the largest economy in the world is China. Probably the largest contiguous land empire is China. One of the most advanced civilizations in any way you would care to record is China. This was so much the case, and this is 1800, and we're not talking five or six, seven hundred years ago, that uh, famously uh, Joseph Needham, a scholar, uh, did a bunch of research on this, and then the result is a one of the great works of scholarship ever uh, achieved is called Science and Civilization in China, in which he asks basically what he calls the Needham question. Why did China not dominate the world rather than after 1800 with its encounter with the West, did China falter? This is also called more technically the question of divergence. Why was there a divergence between sort of the Western world and China? And this is fascinating, and, and Needham's scholarship is really I mean, amazing in, in many ways. Um, but I think that the, the question sort of is one of those forest for the trees questions. Another way to think of it is, why the hell is China still around at all? <laughs> I, I, this is, China is a contiguous civilization is older than ancient Greece. Imagine if the ancient Greeks were still around. Would we be saying, well, why don't they dominate the world? It would be like, wow, they're still here, right, as a contiguous, unbroken civilization. When you look at China, this is the question. How is it that a civilization that is, that is at least conservatively 2,700 years old, it depends on how you want to count these things, but if you want to just go with written civilization, you're, you're looking at 2,700 years of contiguous uh, closely allied history, unbroken. And, and, and here it is, in the modern world today, rising again. It's an extraordinary achievement. One way, to, not the only explanation, but one aspect of this is the written Chinese language. <clears throat> and that's what I want to focus on this evening, because it really helps to explain the difference of China and ourselves and the rest of the world and how they've been able to survive. And again, if you look around the world, no other civilization is even a close second. I mean, if you want to date Western civilization from, say, I don't know, the Renaissance, you can give us 500 years, 400 years. I mean, it's nothing, like I said, nothing is, is even moderately comparable. Of course, the United States, we've been going for all of 350 or 400 years, not even as a nation, just as people being around. Uh, besides the natives. I mean, these sorts of things are extraordinary. But China, not just still a going concern, but 1,800, largest economy in the world, one of the most advanced civilizations in the world today, right where they have been basically for the last 2,000 years, one of the most important, most advanced, most interesting civilizations. 
So, let's go back. Uh, Chinese prehistory of China goes way back. There's now a debate, there's been a new discovery about potential early forms of Chinese writing that go back to 4000 BC. Now this is very disputed and lots of debate about that, but it's no problem to go back uh, 13, 1400 BC. This is, this is not debated. This is easily recognizable Chinese. Uh, lots of broadcastings of Chinese characters that are the equivalent of, of actual characters still in use today. So on one hand, you have characters, undisputed, that go back directly 3,300 years. Same characters used to mean the same thing. And that's a minimum. That's a conservative minimum. 3,300 years of continuous use, same character, same meaning. This is, this is extraordinarily... I mean, there, again, there's no even close equivalent of this. Um, so, but if, if you really just bring it up to, to what the major influence is, you want to look at the Drew period. Uh, this goes roughly from 700-ish BC. Uh, you can go a little earlier, a little later if you want. I mean, again, the, the, the dating of all of this uh, is loose, but uh, 1046, some people date it by to 246, roughly. It's about an 800-year period, 1000 BC to 250-ish BC. This is not imperial China, this is dynastic China. But what's extraordinary about this is it has all the hallmarks of what we would sort of recognize as classical caricature of ancient China. I mean, it's, it's in the right place. It's based on the Yellow River. This would be a little northeast of the, of the Yangtze. Most of the, by the way, I should mention that most of the classical movement of the Chinese language is from sort of northeast to southwest. This is the migration of classical Chinese. Um, so in the Drew period, again, 1,000 to about 250, you have the, what's called the spring and autumn period, and then you have the warring states period. And what's amazing about this is it's, I like to think of it as sort of the equivalent of a Chinese renaissance, because you get Confucius, you get Taoism, you get Moism, you get legalism, you get the notion of the imperial system, it's not in place yet, but you get the idea of this, all worked out in the span of about 200 years. And not just worked out, but written down. Second extraordinary notion here is, so if you think of Confucius around 400 BC, we have texts that are contemporaneous with his life. So we have Confucius texts from the period when Confucius was alive. <coughs> Again, this is the extraordinary continuity of Chinese civilization. This is over 2,400 years ago. And we have, we don't know if Confucius wrote those texts, he probably didn't. But they were written while he was alive. Just as a, as a, as a comparison to that, uh, the, the earliest versions of the Old Testament date back, I mean, even pieces of the Old Testament come roughly two and mostly 300 years uh, AD, several many generations post because the, the fragmentary record of what was written down was lost, and you have oral transmission. With, with Confucius, you, we've got it. We've got it from the source. The Analects of Confucius, which we'll talk about, uh, are, are compiled in an early version, 50 BC, so just a generation, a few generations after he lived, from again, living texts. 
So the continuity is extraordinary. Um, but again, you also get Taoism at this time is rising. And it's rising in the form of the classical Chinese language, which essentially is set by, the, by the, what was, comes right after this period is, is the uh, um, Qin dynasty. Uh, it, it, uh, Qi dynasty, sorry, it comes right there. And it's the first imperial dynasty. Um, and with that, you get the setting of the classical Chinese language. This is 200 BC. It's been pretty well established before, but now it's really formalized. And I want to stop now and give you an idea of, of what the language actually is, because you'll never see more nonsense about something than the Chinese language. Uh, it's really, really extraordinary. I'm not sure why it attracts so much nonsense. It's sort of like um, uh, quantum mechanics and nuclear physics. For some reason, it just attracts people who know nothing about quantum mechanics or nuclear physics. <laughs> Chinese attracts people who know nothing about Chinese. Famously, Ezra Pound translated Chinese poems without knowing Chinese, which I think is an interesting sort of approach to poetry, right? And translation. Uh, the notion that people, well, I sort of have this vague idea of what Chinese means. Um, and Chinese is not difficult in one sense. It's a, what they call a logosyllabic uh, language, but it, it just, it's characters based. Each character uh, represents a sound, hence syllabic, uh, syllable, and a word. And so you, if you look at the front, it says Chinese language there at the front, uh, where it says simplified and classic, those are two versions of the same poem. They've simplified the character set. This, this, was, this was done under the communists in the 1950s, although there have been many runs at this uh, throughout Chinese history. Um, if you have a better eye than I do, you can see the simplifications. It takes, took me a lot of searching to go, oh, well, that character's been simplified. Um, it's very inconsistent and, and it's very debatable and all that. But the first character in the upper left there is the character for heart. Um, and the character for heart, it just means heart. That is a single character that means a single concept, a single idea, heart. Now, most words in Chinese, or many, many, many words, are actually um, multi-characters. So you just combine a couple of characters, and then you get a new word. Uh, so you combine heart with, I can't remember the other word, and it means careful. Heart and something, another character, and it means careful. Or my, my favorite one, or one of the good ones I've been thinking about, is you combine the character for lightning and the character for brain and you get computer. <laughs> right? I love that. That's a great, it's a, such, a, such a wonderful way to get the idea of computer. But notice this is precisely what we do in English. This isn't some mystical, magical, deeply meaningful system. It's a great system. It works excellent. It's worked well for, you know, several thousand years. Uh, but we take a word like out which means, you know, not in, it's, you know, it's just a simple preposition, and look, look to see, we combine and we make outlook. Now, vaguely related, but not really the same idea. We take a word like compute, which in, in English is a verb, um, and we add an R, we make computer, a thing that computes, right? This, this use of existing words to construct combinations of words uh, this is a precisely, I mean, it, this is an exact corollary of what Chinese does. 
to be a literate Chinese person, a pretty literate Chinese person, you need about 4,000 characters memorized so that you can read them without question. But this doesn't mean you know 4,000 words. That would be silly. It means you know those characters and the vast number of combinations. Right? So, you know, prefixes, suffixes, just like, just like in, in English. Uh, debate, re-debate, pre-debate. Right? Are those good words? They seem like maybe they're not. Right? But we know we have these units that we can mix and match to create new words that have sometimes completely alien meanings. Functionally, this is how Chinese works. Has almost no grammar. Really has no grammar that we would recognize as grammar. This is why translations of Chinese often sound like pigeon. I go school. Right? Well, it sounds silly, but if you don't have the, the various declination systems, then that's what you get. They have almost no grammar. They have word order, which is syntax, by the way, which is very common to English, almost exactly the same. Subject, object, verb. I go, where do I go? I go to school. Subject, object, verb. Uh, just a note, not that it matters unless you're going to study Chinese, often breached. <laughs> so they have word order, they use it a lot, and then they just pitch it out. This is, this is what makes it difficult for, for scholars and people translating is they follow it loosely. What really stands out to me about Chinese, and you can see this if you look at the first sentence. By the way, this is two poems. This is one poem. Both versions of the Chinese above it. And then a, a literal translation, heart at water, essence, land. And then a sort of figurative translation into workable English, my heart is in a world of water and crystal. Um, if you look at that heart at water, essence, land, that's four nouns and a preposition. In Chinese, what you get? Nouns. Nouns, 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 nouns. It's, it's, it's like the opposite language from Latin, from which part of our language is derived. If you think about a phrase in Latin like, uh, oh, I came, I saw, I conquered, which is weedy, weedy. Uh, no, by the way, there's no the sound in, in Latin. It's weedy, 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 that's right. Yeah. Now, wiki, wiki, that's right. There's no really sound either. So, yeah, that... That's three, it means I came, I saw, I conquered. But they, you do it with just three verbs. Siwela, siwela, wedding, is if you are well, I am well. But it's with three words, a preposition or a question, if, and then a declined verb that means you are well, and a declined verb that means I am well. But you don't need the nouns. You don't need the, the proper nouns there. And so in Latin, what you get is verbs and verbs and more verbs and a lot more verbs. In Chinese, the sort of close equivalent would be I well, I health, you health. Four nouns. This is the, the feel of Chinese. As you get to work with Chinese, you look at some of the translations of Chinese. It's not that they don't have verbs, they have verbs. It's not that they don't have, they have lots of adverbs, they have, they have everything that we have. It's a very, I mean, obviously it's a ridiculously rich in full language. Um, but the essence, the, the, what you get are a lot of, of nouns. Proper, direct, strong nouns over and over and over again. It's quite amazing. So again, if you look at the literal translation of this poem, you will see this. 
right? Heart at water essence land. Close spring rain time. I mean, if you count, I, do, I haven't done this, but if you literally go through and count the number of nouns up in the literal sort of character set to word translation, what you'll find is, wow, they're using a lot of nouns. Um, so this is the, the core of the Chinese language, and this is set down again already in the, in the writings of Confucius and, and the Tao. Um, again, I, I talk about the... So that's just I did a brief... The briefest of sketches of how Chinese works. And I say this because if you flip over the page, I, I, I have produced three translations of, this is the first chapter of the Tao Te, of the Tao Te Ching. No, of, of uh, Lao Tzu's work. Yeah, the Tao Te Ching. And what you'll see is this incredible deviation. There's a website online, great, great resource, has 107 translations of the Dadich. Uh, again, this is, this is why you will not find 107 translations of, of the contemporaneous work of Confucius. Um, because he's clear, concise, exact, beautiful, balanced Chinese prose. Well, that's boring. <laughs> Right? We're not interested in his ideas. We're interested in sort of creating these crazy versions of, of ancient Chinese. And so I think what this has done is contributed to this notion that it's this light, impenetrable, mystical language that sort of says everything but nothing you can put your fingers on. Uh, I really think it's wrong. That's just wrong. Uh, Chinese is a clear, balanced, powerful language. Again, nouns, nouns, nouns. Four character sets balanced by eight character sets. And if you look at the works of Confucius in particular, um, extraordinarily clear statements of ethical uh, interests, conversations, everything you could want. Not in a confusing manner, not in a mystical manner. Very grounded, very clear. For some reason that half of the tradition doesn't seem to carry quite the mystique. Um, there's questions we can think about why that is. But just I just want to clarify that, that the, the Tao Te Ching is a difficult work to translate. One, because of its age, and two, because when they wrote it, they wrote it in a way so that you couldn't translate it. It didn't make, doesn't make that much sense in Chinese, really. <laughs> right? It's important to remember Taoism at this time is an esoteric religion. It means it doesn't want to tell you what it's doing. And so when you try to translate things that are esoteric, they sound esoteric, no matter what you do. Ah, this is not a mistake. This is not the fault of the Chinese language. You can write mystical, verbiage, unpenetrable crap in English. Ah, notice the translations here, I think, will give you some good trans examples of that. You can also write very concisely. You, you can do both in Chinese, and you can do both beautifully in Chinese. Um, so there's nothing in Chinese that is necessarily or even emphasizes uh, any sort of mystification or, or lack of clarity, quite the contrary. So, having clarified that, hopefully, you know, just a teeny tiny hint of how Chinese works. Um, the timeline, again, so back to Confucius and Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu probably never existed. Confucius definitely existed. Um, you get the Taoist tradition. 
you get the uh, legalist tradition, you get the Moist tradition, um, and you get uh, the uh, Confucius tradition, and others. It's called the Spring and Autumn Period. I love that name for it. The Spring and Autumn Period. Because again, it's like, it's like this renaissance of all of these ideas, all of this cultural mixing tanking on in, in China. Then you get the Qi Dynasty comes in and burns a lot of books, but sets up the first official empire. This is the Chinese Empire for the first time. Only lasts a brief time. Much more importantly is the Han Dynasty. Han Empire is set up. They come about 200 BC and last about 400 years to 200 AD. Of what, what they do that's important besides you know, centralizing, A, getting rid of the sort of legalist repressive nut jobs that were there before them, always good. Uh, one, they become officially Confucianist. So this is the first time that Confucius, which has been around and been influential since his time, he was influential in his own lifetime, becomes the official doctrine of the imperial household, which makes it, of course, the official doctrine of everybody who has any interest in doing anything and getting ahead in the world. And they establish a unique institution in the ancient world, an early version of the exam system, that changes and evolves and, and really gets formalized in about 600, about 400 years later, it gets totally emphasized and developed, and lasts until 1911. So it's a 1,700-year, more or less continuous system of exams. This is crucial for a couple of reasons. One, the exam system said, hey, anybody in, the, in, in our community, anybody in the world, in theory, in practice, of course, this doesn't work out, um, can take the exams and become an imperial minister. You can work for the state. It's the way you get a job of the state. Prior to this, the way you did jobs was the aristocratic way. Your, your uncle is the duke of this, and his cousin needs a job, and so it's patronage and power favors to the military and to the landed aristocracy. If you want to be an empire, this is a dangerous system because it means all the local aristocracies maintain all their power. And you always are trying to balance one against the other. What the exam system has done since its inception, and again, Han Dynasty, very early rudimentary aspect of this, was say, no, we can bring other people in and we can distribute them all over the empire. And so it gave the imperial court a basis of authority outside the aristocracy. This is great if you're the imperial court. Second, it also for the first time allowed essentially talent to rise. One of the things to understand about China is it's huge. In ancient terms, it's truly immense, and it's very densely populated. And it's what's called an integrated economy. Um, so if you want to feed people in northwestern China, you're probably going to need foodstuff from the southeast. Well, how do you get it there? The Chinese, like us, love roads. They love canals. They love irrigation. They've been doing incredible feats of engineering from the beginning because they've been trying to develop this integrated economy. A very modern economy, actually. You don't want every little principality and kingdom to be independent. 
You want them to all trade with each other to diversify, do what they do best, and ship the excess someplace else. The only way that works, however, is if you have peace and harmony. And so the imperial system was a way of, of, of establishing peace and harmony and then distributing the talents that you need, because if you need a canal, you need somebody who's educated and knows how to build canals, do tax system, collect taxes, settle legal cases, right? All of this bureaucracy rises up. It's right there, by the way, bureaucracy, right there. As soon as you get any kind of government, bureaucracy. Um, and so this is the first time that basically in history where just talent, that was the rules. Here's an exam, learn it, study, do well, and you rise. You can rise and become almost as power, powerful as the emperor. So powerful, in fact, that the aristocracy started training their children to take the exams. Which, notice how great that is. Because now you have the child of somebody who's a landed gentry over here, and you take them and send them to the imperial court, and they get sent off someplace else in the country. Now you actually have an investment someplace else. It's a spur to trade. It breaks down all kinds of localism and regionalism and allows this cohesive unit to form. Now, it's not perfect, of course. Nothing is. It doesn't implement overnight. But this was an incredible breakthrough in ancient history. You read anything else from you for the next thousand years, nobody has anything close to this. And it allowed for the development of this incredible coherence built on the central figure of the emperor. And what was the exams? Well, of course, the exams were primarily, at times exclusively, the Confucius classics. Again, this is extraordinary. By the time the exams are implemented, Confucius has been dead for 600 years. But his influence is so powerful that this becomes the guide to how to become a state, how to be a governor, how to be a tax collector. So think of any job in the imperial bureaucracy. Anybody who got that job took the exams. If they took the exams, it means they knew the Confucius classics more or less they had them memorized. Now exactly what constitutes the Confucius classics changed all the time. Two of them, one of them in fact, is probably not even a, a collection of Confucius sayings. It probably wasn't by Confucius. But it was a series of four or five or six major works that everybody studied and learned. And then, if you did well, like I said, you could suddenly become the governor of some province. Which is weird, by the way. You think about this. How did you become the governor of a province? I studied a work on ethics and I write good poetry. <laughs> you wouldn't think that would work out. But it turns out that it does. It works really, really well. But so when I talk about the literary continuity of China, it's important to keep this in mind. This is not an exaggeration. The governors of all the provinces attacked by everybody who was any significant functionary in the government was literate and illiterate in precisely the same works which emphasized ethics, good governance, good behavior, the Confucius uh, ethos. This was China. Two things to think about is the history of China ebbs and flows. Of course, it's a very convoluted history. I can't go through all the details. But think about, OK, you know, you have the civil war breaks out. Ah, the Chinese hate civil war. It's, it's, for them, it's the curse. Why? Because again, they had developed early 
an integrated economy. If you have little principalities, say like in, in Italy in the Renaissance, they were almost self-sustaining. They did some ocean trade, they, but if, if you cut them off, it took a long time for them to start to starving. Their domestic production was you know, 80% local. They interported luxuries and all this, but nobody dies if you don't get coffee or silks from somewhere. In China, you might you have province, provinces that are importing significant percentages of their foodstuffs. And so some province between them and the province that has the food rebels. Well, now they're screwed. And, and everything was interlinked all over the country this way. And so anytime there was civil unrest, it wasn't a little disturbance. It wasn't like, oh, a local war between these two people, basically throw the whole economy of the country off. And led to mass famines, mass starvation, huge population shifts as people tried to move towards where the food was. And so the, the desire to reintegrate was very strong and consistent. And so China would go through these periods of pretty stable imperial rule, and then because of outside forces or internal tensions, break apart. And then Almost instantly, they start to get back together again. And as soon as they got back together, everybody said, oh, let's put the exam system back in and get this thing rolling. If you're an outside invader, let's say you're the Mongols. Mongols tried to break the exam system. They canceled it. It did no good. The Confucianism by this time is too well established. So they roll in, and they say, right, that's it. We've taken over. One, there's not that many Mongols. Certainly not enough to swamp the population. There may be three, four, five percent of the population. So great, we're not going to have all of these Confucius scholars around who don't know what to do. We are military men. Excellent. Great. Hey, excuse me, General. We've got some flooding down in the southeast and it's threatening the rice crops. And we've got this dike issue. So we're thinking, what do you want to do about the dikes? And they're like, who did you guys have take care of that before? Oh, we've got this Confucius scholar guy, see? And he does the dikes down there. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, send him on it. We'll put him on it, right? And it took about 40 years before the Mongols are speaking Chinese and they're, they're using the local officials. And they never reinstituted the exam system at the imperial level. But it didn't matter. The Confucius influence was so strong, regionally and locally, and the demand for the skills that had been sort of monopolized by the scholars what is obvious, right? You can't, you can take over, you can be a military people, all this, but if you want to collect taxes and interpret the law and build bridges and keep the dikes and dams and rivers going and expand the irrigation systems and move the foodstuffs where they need to be in such a massive country, well, you know what? You need some bureaucrats. And if you didn't happen to bring your own from the steppes of Mongolia with you, who are you gonna use? Conveniently enough, a bunch of Confucius scholars, right? And so by the time the Mongols leave, of course, the Confucians are back in business again. Um, and this just rolled on, and you can you you understand technically, functionally, why. And so the influence of the literature that the Confucius study, uh, that the scholars studied, is basically this unbroken channel of knowledge of government and order and ethics uh, and, and societal reform that rolls from you know 400 BC to 1911, 2,300 years, un, 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 more or less unbroken reign. 
the Jin Dynasty, by the way, the last, the last of, of the empire, imperial families, uh, were Manchu, famously. Uh, they come from Manchuria, Manchus. Uh, they, they went native almost overnight. I mean, it's remarkable how quickly they turned Chinese. By the end of the Qing Dynasty, no one even remembered that they weren't Chinese anymore. They were so, they had gone, so become so native uh, to all of this. They didn't, they didn't ex- in the exam system, they reformed it. In some ways, they improved it. They saw immediately how necessary this was to keep things rolling. And so one, so, so that's why I say that the, the continuity of Chinese civilization is in part because you had this incredibly strong, very distributed, specifically educated group of bureaucrats. And whoever invaded faced exactly the problems that the people who controlled the country before faced. And because there was existing already all of the people who at least had some way to solve the problem, they just... It just rolled on. Uh, Two other major influences to talk about here, though, as far as the literature goes. One um, is Taoism. This entire time, if you could come up with a system the opposite of Confucianism, it would have to be Taoism. Whatever Confucius says, Taoism says the opposite. You know, Lao Tzu, Chongzi say, basically they say Confucius, eh, not so much. Right? It, it's, it's the yin and the, and, and the yang sort of classically simplified. Uh, the example I like to use is the, 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 you know, one of the images of, of the Taoist scholars, the retiring from the world into the garden. So they're early practitioners of the arts of gardening. In fact, they're, Chinese are early practitioners of all the arts, by the way. Um, and there's a famous, I can't remember, I think it's in the Song Dynasty, the famous uh, Gardener who had this beautiful garden called the Garden of Failed Political Ambition. <laughs> right? And so, but notice that beautiful play, right? So he's got this beautiful, famous garden, so is that good? But the only reason he's there working in the beautiful garden is because his ambitions were thwarted at court somehow. Who knows? You know, maybe he got busted for embezzling, you know, he crossed somebody, he failed some test somewhere along the line. Um, but so, so this is the, th- as, as, uh, as contrary as they seem, in fa- practice, they rolled right along together. The Confucius scholars were the Taoists. The Taoists were the Confucius scholars. One thing to remember is if you were highly literate, you knew the Confucius classic, Confucian classics. This was what it meant to be highly literate. The, the, the crazy poet monks of China, of which there are many, and they're hilarious, uh, were, they knew their Confucian classics. These people were incredibly well-educated. Um, it's, it's one of the things that we miss sometimes when we read the histories of these things, is they're wandering around, oh, I'm a poor poet, monk, well, yeah, but everybody who knew them, who saw them, knew that, that they had probably been scholars who had passed the exams. And if you were a scholar who passed the exams, it meant today you might be begging with a rice bowl, and tomorrow you might be governor of the province. Everyone knew this. Do you see how, see how that marks you aside? So they, you aren't just a random, illiterate peasant. If you're a random, illiterate peasant, people throw rocks at you. <laughs> if you're a random, literate Taoist guy, People are like, oh, he's educated, he's literate, he's probably got contacts with the imperial palace or the local magistrates. So, hey, let's treat him nice. 
It's a very different relationship in a country that's mostly illiterate, of course. By the way, most of the history, most of the people illiterate, of course, like with, with any other country, although a relatively high rate of literacy by historical standards. So there, what, what seemed to be two completely conflicting systems, in fact, functioned very well and rolled on together throughout Chinese history. And they informed each other, communicated with each other. And if you read the literature that we talk about, you'll see how this works. Um, so you have the, the river, and then about 600, yeah, 600 AD, remarkable journeys start to take place. Where uh, Chinese scholars, one of them we have the record, a very clear, amazing record called, I think, Journey to the West, something like the account of the journey to the West, uh, going to India, because they had gotten word that there's this thing called Buddhism. Some Indian monks are coming, which knows to the Chinese this is to the West. So when they go to the West, they go to India. We don't think of that as going to the West, but that, of course, for them is the West. Um, you go to the West, and then they went and they got Buddhism. And so you start getting this incursion of Buddhism into China. Happens slowly, happens over a long period of time. All the, the, the Sanskrit and Pali classics are translated into Chinese. And then once again, they just absorb it. It just becomes part of the Chinese classics. And so they mix Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, which again, on the outside, if you just read the text, you would go, these people have nothing to do with each other. Like you had no knowledge of history, and they said, read these precepts, read these precepts, and read these precepts and ask me if those people are going to get along. You're like, no, there's going to be a religious war, and somebody's going to triumph, and it's certainly not going to be the Dallas, uh, you know, because they're, they're going to retreat the entire time. Uh, but but in, in fact, no. They form this sort of syncretic hybrid that any literate Chinese person would know the Buddhist classics after 6700, would know, the, obviously, the Confucius classic, of course, is the core, and would know the Dallas classics and believe in them. And order their lives to the extent that people do along those lines. They didn't believe in them a little bit, they believed in them a lot. This is how you make a society function, and this is how you make a life function. And so you have this bizarrely educated group of humans selected out from hopefully the best and brightest of your population, who for you know roughly 1,800, 2,000 years form the core of the administrative elite of your country. This turns out to be hugely stabilizing uh, and, and, and amazing, and it produces all kinds of things. One, it produces a lot of art and a lot of good writing. Uh, if, but but it, this is when I said at the beginning, 1800, largest GDP in the world, China. One of the most advanced countries in the world, China. Why? Well, because they've been rolling for 25, 2600 years at that point. And for 2200 of them, they've had this amazing system to keep them organized, to keep them going. We'll talk about what happens after that towards the end of the lecture. I want to mention, if, if you're interested in accessing this literature, we're lucky because, of course, they've beautifully maintained written heritage. And in China, they have the four classics, and by God, they're the four classics. So we should just talk about those briefly. And the way they're spread out is wonderful. It's, it's almost cheating that it would work out this well. But first, of course, you have Confucianism, Analects. I, I recommend the Analects. If you're thinking about reading some, they're, they're well-organized, and they're fascinating. I was just looking at the bookstore, and there's like 
500 books on Taoism and two on Confucianism. Uh, but this, this more or less reverses probably the realistic influence of the two. By the way, there was one called the Tao of Jesus. <laughs> if, if, if th this is how wrong we get this stuff, right? If you want to know how wrong we go with translating Chinese, whoever wrote the Tao of Jesus, that's exactly as wrong as you can go. Um, but the four classics are the water margins, or the tale of the marshes, or the tale of the rebels. Uh, these stories can have five or six possible names. Um, let's see. Uh, this is set right at the end. I mentioned this is about 200 AD. It's set at the end, the collapse of the Han Empire. And it tells the story of some uh, unfortunate people who are sort of exiled, hence out to the marshes. And lots of things happen. <laughs> it's an incredibly evolved, linked series of tales. It's, it's usually in a, either two fat volumes or four skinny volumes um, when it's translated. There's hundreds of characters. I can't, there, I, and there's not necessarily an overarching plot. It's just lots of things that happen as these people struggle to rejoin civilization. They fight for survival. They fight to get back to civilization. Uh, eventually, they're double-crossed, uh, some of the main characters. In the end, a bunch of the main ones get double-crossed and killed. Um, but it, it is, it's this hugely elaborate and beautiful and interlocking series of stories all set around this early period uh, in Chinese civilization, at the end of the Han Empire. Now, what's... Uh, significant about this is because there's so many stories and so many characters, it's like a kaleidoscopic review of Chinese civilization at the time. We would kill to have this sort of text for almost any other ancient civilization. It's just, it, 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 it's amazing. So again, you, you can read that one, highly recommended, uh, fascinating. Um, the next one in time uh, it's called The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, and, and this is set... Wait, did I get that backwards? That's set the end of the Han Dynasty? Oh, I'm sorry, right. Water Marshes is set later. I'm sorry, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is set at the end of the Han, Han Dynasty. See, I should write these dates down. Uh, Water Martians is set a little later um, in the... Oh, what is it for? It's written in the 14th century. Ming, Ming Dynasty. Ming Dynasty, thank you. Yeah, it's written in the 14th century, set in the Ming Dynasty. Uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is set in the Han Dynasty. Romance of the Three Kingdoms, anybody familiar with this one? Because it's, it's, it's a great, it's like this endless series of battles, an endless series of incredibly great characters. Uh, Li Bao, uh, Li Bai, Wang Zhu, I mean, and they just, this elaborate, incredible rises and falls and scholars and poet monks and set piece battles and governors and it is a tour de force. In China, they just make lots and lots of movies and video games set in this period because it's just, it's like a, I don't know, a 600-page swashbuckling novel. I mean, it's just action, 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 great characters, great sets. Like I said, rises and falls and collapses and uh, escapes and captures and uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. It is like an action-adventure movie for 600 pages, all set at the end of the Han Dynasty. Uh, then you get the Journey to the West, which is set in the Tong Dynasty. 
Okay, notice how these are spaced out. This is why this is so beautiful. The four, the four classics are spaced beautifully out through the uh, history of China. So this is about 618-907. Now, the journey to the West is a fictionalized account of the actual journey that uh, one monk in particular, whose name I forget, Wanzhou, I think, took. Remember, I mentioned that they actually went to get Buddhism in India uh, and explore it. They were on their way to Angshan, I believe. And it, it is sort of the Chinese equivalent of sort of uh, the Conference of the Birds in Persia, where there's dragons and demons and a horse that transforms itself in a monkey, and it's great. I mean, some, I think some of the story of the monkey is another way it's translated, the tale of the monkey. Um, and it's a literal trip with actual geographic detail taken from the actual text. So, I mean, a lot of the, the uh, setting of it is real, sort of like a historical novel. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Uh, so, but the metaphorical content is very much richer because the journey itself becomes the journey of, of self-discovery. So it, it sort of narrates aspects of Buddhism and Taoism as the journey to go find it goes along. And then it just folds in all kinds of other crazy stuff. Uh, I, I think of, of them, it's, it's the second best of, of the four major uh, fictional works in China, the great major works. That one is definitely... If you're going to read one, it's shorter than the others, uh, which is always highly recommended, uh, and, and, and very, very entertaining. Uh, my personal favorite, again, set at the end of this period, actually set in the 18th century, it's at the at end of the Qing Dynasty, um, is uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, Story of the Stone, uh, Dream of the Red Dust. I mean, it comes in, in, in many uh, different titles again. Um, this is just simply, the, it's a, an endless... Soap opera, um, beautifully written, beautifully set of the decline of a family uh, as the Manchu dynasty is failing. It's trying to transfer and it's trying to hang on, but it's, 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 it's starting to fail. And this is the story. But mixed in the story, so on one hand you have this beautiful layering of this narrative of the decline of the family, um, but mixed in, hence the title of the story of the stone, there's, is one of the main characters is born with some light jade in his mouth. This is the stone. And on the stone, there is this unbelievably long inscription. I can't believe they got it all on there. Uh, but it is also an entire exploration of the ideas of Taoism and Buddhism applied in a Confucius setting. This is why I say they don't separate. And you'll see this in all the other stories as well, by the way. But it's very explicit, very direct on the dream of the red chamber or the story of the stone. If you read these four classics, you will get an intimate, detailed, historically accurate, by the way, um, review of Chinese history at almost exactly 200 year or 300 year intervals from the end of the Han to the end of the Qing. It's, it's amazing. I mean, they're great to read just as reads, but when you're done with them, you can really develop a feel um, for, the, for the different aspects of, of Chinese civilization and culture, and I, I really recommend those. Combined with any simple reading of Confucian classics and Taoism, and, you know, I think you're there. 
you can really get a good grasp of this, more than I think any other civilization that's this old, because Chinese, China has lived continuously. It, it's never failed. So they have a, it's a living tradition, it's a living heritage. So it's 1800 again, end of the dream of the Red Chamber, that's the end of the dream. We know what happens then in China. Largest GDP in the world, largest population probably, yeah, certainly. Um, a very advanced <clears throat> opium wars are about to kick off. And again, what, what you need to, to grasp here is that what the opium wars break is the imperial aura begins to collapse. And with that social order and with that everything. So the opium wars, there's two of them, not hugely damaging loss of life, but more or less destroy the Chinese economy, which then, of course, begins to cause a whole series of ripple effects. And you slide into civil war. You slide into uh, a whole series of regime changes and, and attempts to struggle. And theoretically, this is resolved vaguely in 1911 with the establishment under the Kuomintang of the... Of the sort of a modern state. But it's, this is, it's not a modern state. It's nothing. It's like the, the window dressing over chaos. Nothing has been worked out. Uh, you have Japan creating havoc in one part and threatening. You have, um, it, you, you have four or five different political factions negotiating to try and gain power. They never really control the entire country. Warlords control whole sections of China at this period. And again, I, remember, I keep mentioning the integrated economy because when one part breaks down, the whole country starts to fail. And one of the things they tried to do away with was the imperial exam system. We're going to get a modern education. So what happens when you eliminate the imperial exam system and you have no schools, per se, by the way? Because, of course, you had other schools. You have a modern state with, no, well, an attempt at a modern state with no educated bureaucrats at all. This, of course, doesn't work at all. <laughs> this, this is a miserable failure, and very shortly, they try to begin reinstating the exam system that looked almost exactly the same as the exam system that looked for all the years before. So this struggle goes along, modern China, the suffering, the struggling, and then the communists take over eventually. Um, which would theoretically might have been a good thing because they did finally sort of unify the country. Things started to improve a little bit. And then you got the Great Leap Forward. The Great Leap Forward was an attempt, ill-considered, to modernize China. What it did is cut life expectancy almost in half, starved, we don't know how many millions of Chinese to death, and just wrecked everything. If you wanted to wreck everything, you couldn't have done a better job than the Great Leap Forward. It was an attempt to leave everything that had made China, China, successful, again, 1800, largest economy in the world, behind. They said, we're going to overleap all this. We're going to start over with a new system. By the way, Stalin tried something very similar in Russia with very similar results. So then you get internal turmoil in China. 
This gets fought out. Um, Deng Xiaoping, among others, attempt to modernize the Chinese economy a little bit, import Western ideas, meld them with Chinese ideas, get things going again. This results in the Cultural Revolution, which is really a counter-revolution, which was a conscientious, conscious attempt. The Great Leap Forward seemed to be mostly a good will attempt to try and modernize China uh, at the highest rate of speed. Cultural Revolution, Mao and his supporters said, the reason we're not modernizing, the reason we're not being able to do this, the reason the, the Communist Revolution is not succeeding is because of Chinese heritage. This, he said, this is the problem. All of this stuff that we've inherited for 2,000, over 2,000 years, is holding us back. We're going to get rid of it. The Little Red Book was an attempt to replace the Chinese classics, most notably Confucius, with a book that looked exactly like the Confucius classics, by the way. One of these hilarious moments in history. With, but with a new Confucius classic. We don't need all of that. That's the past. You burn the books, you kill, imprison, exterminate, and you can, the scholars. You try and break the social structures that supported all of this consciously. Up to this point, you know, the attempt to modernize and create problems and dislocations, but there had been very little, you know, overt, let's just crush them and kill them. Now it was, now, we're going to burn, we're going to destroy, I mean, it's, it's, it's heartrending. They just, just went to museums and destroyed them. It would be like France saying, that's it, our past is holding us back, let's burn down the Louvre. We've got to get rid of that crap. But Mao was not wrong. What was keeping his reforms from really taking hold, besides the fact that they were, of course, insane, uh, what was that people would do what people always They fell back on their cultural heritage and said, no, this does not work for us. So if you look at China in 1976, the official end date for the Cultural Revolution, its economy, uh, GDP is one-fifteenth of the United States. And that's probably, probably wasn't that much, but the sort of rough guesstimate was one-fifteenth that of the United States. So in 176 years, they had gone from being the largest economy in the world to being one-fifteenth the size of the largest economy in the world. This is, this is an unbelievable dip. The life expectancy in China in 1976 is half that of the developed world. When you consider that they have roughly three times the population of the United States, the per GDP production is 145th that of the United States. Today, half. Chinese economy is half the size of the United States. This is an unbelievable, extraordinary, perhaps historically unprecedented turnaround. How did they do it? How is this possible that you take a country tiny, one-fifteenth the size of the U.S. economy, and in 30 years, and notice the United States economy has been growing for the last 30 years. They've been doing this against an increasingly large U.S. economy. So they've not just been growing, they've been growing at an extraordinary rate. Deng Xiaoping did several things. By the way, Deng Xiaoping um, probably did more to lift people out of misery and poverty than others, any single individual in the 20th century. Uh, 
mean, his reforms in China, not just his alone, but as much as a single individual can do, has lifted, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of just simply abject poverty and starvation. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement. On the surface, it's not like he walked in and said, hey, let's put the imperial exam system back in. Let's get the Confucius classics going. They certainly haven't re-embraced Taoism and Buddhism. This has not happened. Um, but one, some market reforms, but within the Chinese context. China has always had this love-hate relationship with the outside world. Trades a little, and then it would burn down all of its trading ports, which, which, which to us seems insane. But when you remember that their entire economy is built on internal cohesion, it's not crazy. If people from the outside start creating trouble, you stop the trouble. And China's been invaded probably a hundred times at least in history. And so it begins to import ideas from abroad, which China has done successfully in the past, but does exactly what they say they, they do, which they make it work for us. It's a Chinese model of Western liberalization. And what they've been doing is trying to liberalize within the context of a classical Chinese civilization model. If you look at what the Chinese party, Communist Party does, if you want to be a bureaucrat in China, what do you need to do? Be a Chinese party official, you need to be a communist. If you want to own a large business, you need to be a communist party member. All of this structure looks sneakingly like an imperial bureaucracy based on Confucianism, except for they've gotten rid of the Confucianism to a certain extent and replaced it with market reform ideas. And so right now in the heart of China is a battle going on, three-way battle. You have some of the Chinese old guard, communists. They're not giving up. It's like an imperial bureaucracy. You have the new wave of market reform. How much should we reform? How much should we open up? And how quickly? What should that look like? And you have the Confucius, Taoist, Buddhist tradition. They have not gone away. They're still there. They're still working away at various levels. The influence is huge. If you look at what they consider to be good government in their official policy statements, they say this is communist model of good government under our new system. And you read the Confucian classics, you don't even have to squint to go, oh, I can tell you where they got this idea. <laughs> it's, it's mostly a direct translation with a few you know, modern verbs thrown in to make it look good. And so now we're, we, I, I, I end here because I think this is one of the most extraordinary things that's going on in our world today. What, what's going to happen? Nobody knows. One, the communists do not want to reform too quickly because they're terrified of internal dissension. And rightly so. Everything in their history, again, to go back, the civilization is continuous. Internal dissension equals nightmare. The, the, just the, the death and destruction that comes from any sort of that, because again, they've been this hugely integrated economy for so long. On the other hand, if they don't reform quickly enough, they're going to get internal dissension. A few of the questions that they're going to have to face, more or less now, are we going to allow religion back? If so, 
Which ones and how? This would be a monumental move. There's a lot of pressure for this growing in China. They don't, I mean, Confucianism is not a religion as we think of it. But Taoism, maybe, Buddhism, definitely. And those had been major parts of Chinese culture. They still are major parts of Chinese culture. One of my famous details, people know the Ian Pei, the, the um, architect? He built a Hong Kong hotel, just off the mainland of China, of course. And the, the, you know, I don't know what his fee is for a building like that. I'm assuming it's very large, because he's Ian Pei, and that's you know, a two or three hundred million dollar facility. The Taoist monks who blessed it got paid more. And they made him change the design because it was messing up their principles of good design. And so there's a big hole in the middle of it to let, I believe, the spirit of the South Dragon flow out of the mountains and into the bay. This is true. You can look this up online. So I am paid designs this building. And then the Dallas guys come along and say, yeah, not so much. They're not gone. They're, they haven't, this is, this is still there. Not just in Hong Kong, it's all over China. Because Taoism has this folk element to it. Confucianism is not gone. My friend Young Sing Wu, uh, her father, first, first, first generation came over, her father's a physicist. I was in graduate school with her, and she was having some debate with her parents. And I said, you know, Young Sing, why don't you just tell them no? And she said, there is no Chinese word for no to your parents. <laughs> and she was serious. She said, you cannot, there is no way in Chinese to say no to your parents. And I, we had this long argument about this, and I finally had to, to see the point to her, because I don't even speak Chinese, and she, you know. But, I, you know, it's like, but, but that idea is incredibly strong. Today, the family unit in China is not gone. It is still there. It's one of the major tensions in society. Right. And so what we're going to see and what we are seeing is a 22, 23, 2400-year literate tradition still going strong, still becoming an increasingly large force in the world. And we look at it and people say, oh, this is you know, the rising threat of China. Actually, what seems to be happening is China is going right back to where they've always been. One of the largest, most advanced, most sophisticated and powerful countries on earth. And it has been that way, like I said, for 24, 2500 years. And we are fortunate, I mean, one of the great riches that we have, one of the things that motivates me to do this series on languages and literatures, is we have the literature coherent, true, pure, from the entire period. So this is the rare opportunity for us to be able to go back stage by stage, a living history, 26, 7, 800 years old. And so yeah, so I recommend it to you highly. Uh, Chinese, China, uh, there you go.